And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been, has been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage as we come before you today to uh, hear it exposited to us, Lord, to hear uh, just this wonderful story of the early church, Lord, of the joy that we should share, Lord. Uh, most of us here are uh, Gentiles, and those of us who are of Jewish ancestry, Lord, are uh, likewise have cause for great joy, Lord, as the believing Jews like Paul and Barnabas uh, did at that day, Lord, to uh, see the full inclusion, Lord, of your people, Lord, the mystery of the gospel revealed. Lord, uh, we pray for Tom as he preaches today that you, know, you would bless him to speak your truth, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear your truth, Lord, that we would carry these things on into the rest of our week, into the rest of our lives, Lord. Uh, this is, these are your words, Lord. They are made active and alive by your spirit, Lord, and they can do amazing, amazing things in our lives, and they mm -hmm. can truly change the world, Lord. Help us to see that impact from this passage today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks to Daylight Savings Time, I get to preach another hour today. <laughs> Are you saying, you're saying that that's not how it works? In our passage this morning, uh, Luke picks up his narrative exactly one week after Paul's great gospel sermon that he preached the first Sabbath after he and Barnabas and their co-workers had arrived in Pisidian Antioch, which is the highlighted city on that map. Right after relating that gospel proclamation, uh, Luke tells us that the Jews and God-fearers who had, had heard the message, quote, kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And that's exactly what happened. That's where we pick up this morning. Uh, the, uh, we're, we're, we're a week later, and a crowd gathers again at the same synagogue in Pisidian Antioch to hear Paul speak yet again. Uh, but this time the crowd is much, much larger. Luke tells us that nearly the whole city assembled at the synagogue to hear the word of God. Now, as I mentioned before, Pisidian Antioch was an influential city mostly with a mostly Gentile population, as was true really of, of all of the major cities outside of Palestine. They're all mostly Gentile. 
The gathering on that previous Sabbath had been made up of Yahweh worshipers, of the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who usually gathered at at the, the synagogue. But this time, the crowd was made up overwhelmingly of Gentiles from the city's general population. People who up to this point had known and cared little or not at all about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, while Luke does not record for us here the content of the gospel proclamation that Paul preached to the crowd on this second Sabbath in Pisidian Antioch, there's no doubt that he did preach the gospel. The previous Sabbath, the crowd had begged Paul and Barnabas to speak these things again one Sabbath later. And by these things, that meant the things they had just heard. Not something new. And, and that's, that's what happened here. Verse 45 says, When the Jews saw these enormous crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. And they were blaspheming. Now, what was it that they were contradicting? Well, the, the good news, the same good news that had been preached the week before. I'm sure it was a little different message, but it's the same essential stuff. The incomparable good news of Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Son of David and Son of God, Jesus, the long-promised Messiah King and Savior of sinners, through whom alone we have forgiveness of sins. Jesus, the one through whom everyone who believes is freed from the endless and futile striving to make themselves good enough for God by law-keeping. Now, I do not believe that the jealousy of the Jewish synagogue officials here was because they thought that this mob of Gentiles should be listening to them instead of to Paul and Barnabas. No, their jealousy was about excluding Gentiles. It was jealousy to keep the God of Israel for Israelites those whom they deemed to be worthy of that God. Gentile proselytes here and there were tolerable as long as they got circumcised and they did all the things that that Judaism required of them. But having nearly the whole city turn out to the synagogue of the Jews to hear these men say these unbearable things about Israel's Messiah, that was just beyond the pale. Luke says that these Jews were blaspheming. And he would say the same thing again in chapter 18. They were resisting the message and they were blaspheming. And that's in Corinth. Their blasphemy against God was part and parcel of their angry denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They labeled as an abomination the very truth that the Holy Spirit had revealed through their own prophets. And that's blasphemy. And make no mistake, many Jews were coming to faith. In some cities, even some from among the synagogue leadership came to faith. In Corinth, Crispus, the synagogue leader, uh, came to faith in Jesus Christ. But many more Gentiles were coming to faith than Jews. Now, while it's true, again, that in all the cities outside Palestine, the populations were mostly Gentiles, so you'd expect more Gentile converts. This disparity is not about demographics. In city after city, the overwhelming response 
of the Jews to the gospel was open hostility to the messengers of Christ and vigorous rejection of their message. The problem that Paul and his co-workers ran into over and over, city after city, was not pagan Gentiles turning Jews against Jesus. It was Jews turning Gentiles against Jesus. Here in verse 46, Acts 13, it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and they said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you Jews first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to Gentiles. Now that, that declaration, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, that's called sarcasm. Uh, the, the Jews judged themselves worthy of everything. They were the only ones worthy of approval from God. But Paul is saying, because you've rejected the message of the one true way that anyone becomes acceptable in the sight of God and righteous in the sight of God, it is, in effect, you have judged yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. Now, <clears throat> Paul says here that... Uh, that because they repudiated the gospel and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, now Paul and Barnabas were going to turn to the Gentiles. Does that mean that this was the last time Paul proclaimed Christ in a synagogue of the Jews during his missionary journeys? Definitely not. In fact, the very next city that they came to, the first, in Iconium, the first city they went, the, the first place they went to was the synagogue. Throughout Paul's ministry that continued for roughly the next 15 years, the Holy Spirit would bring many more Gentiles into the kingdom than Jews. But Paul's commission from God was not merely, it was not only to bring the gospel to Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, right after Paul's conversion, God declared that Paul would be his instrument, quote, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul himself wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, it was indeed necessary for Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel here in Pisidian Antioch to Jews first. And that would be his assignment in every city that he came to throughout the Roman Empire. But God had made it clear long before this that the Jews as a people would reject the one whom this gospel proclaimed. The very people who should have been most eager to receive Jesus as the Christ, the very people who knew the prophecies that Jesus so perfectly fulfilled at his first coming, rejected him. Nearly 700 years before Jesus came, God declared that that's exactly how this would play out. In Isaiah chapter 53, this great suffering servant passage uh, in verses 3 and 4, it says, He, the suffering servant of God, was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, 
and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we, we Jews, did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, but we ourselves considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. The thing I want you to notice in there is we ourselves considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The Jews considered Jesus to be rejected by God. To put it as John the Apostle does in the first chapter of his gospel, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, in light of the Jews' angry and bitter rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul declares here in Acts 13, verse 46, that he and his co-workers are turning away from the Jews and turning instead to the Gentiles. And he makes it clear that this is entirely in keeping with God's command to them. He cites God's own words from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, in support of that assertion. He says, For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, if you go to Isaiah 49 and you look at that verse, it's talking to Jesus. It's talking to the Messiah. The first seven verses of Isaiah 49 declare centuries beforehand the very words of God's long-promised Messiah as he recounts his father's words to him. Messiah says that the one who formed him from his womb to be his servant told him that he would be the one to restore Israel to God. And then in verse 6 of Isaiah 49, God the Father says to God the Son, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus is the light given both for Jews and Gentiles. He is the one who brings salvation to the whole of mankind. By citing that passage, Paul's message to the Jews and to Gentiles in, the, in this huge gathered assembly at the synagogue is undeniable. Paul's saying that as ambassadors of the same Messiah whose words were recorded by Isaiah, Paul and his co-workers have a clear commission from God because they are ambassadors of that Messiah. The gospel they preach is God's good news to all mankind. So if the Jews in Pisidian Antioch won't hear it, then they will turn to the Gentiles. But why did the gospel have to go first to the Jews? Why did the gospel have to go first to the Jews? Over and over. I believe that one of the foremost reasons that the gospel was to be preached first to the Jews in every place and then to the Gentiles was because from the beginning of their existence as a people, God had appointed the Jews to be the mediators of the knowledge of God to the whole world. In Exodus 19, just before the Ten Commandments were given by God from Mount Sinai to Israel, 
God told Israel that they would be to him a kingdom of priests. Now, there were priests in Israel, and they were the mediators between God and the people. But he said, the whole nation will be a kingdom of priests. And what he meant is that, that Israel was chosen to be the mediators of the knowledge of God to everyone, to everyone. And the Jews never owned that assignment. As a kingdom of priests, they would be, they would be God's, God's mouthpiece. They would be God's ambassadors. Um, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter makes it clear that that priestly commission has now been given to the church. It's been given to you and me. But guys, that doesn't mean God has withdrawn the assignment from Israel. Every Jew who comes to faith in Jesus gets handed the glorious opportunity to embrace the commission that God gave first to the Jews to be his kingdom of priests who bring the knowledge of the one true God to the whole of mankind. Jesus was a Jew according to the flesh. All of the apostles were Jews. Nobody on earth is more primed to be messengers to all the world of the news that Jesus is the long-promised Christ than the Jews who had received the witness of the Father through the Holy Spirit, to the Son, by the mouths of their very own prophets, for generation after generation concerning the long-promised Christ. So the gospel was to be to the Jew first, and then through the Jews to the Gentiles. And it still is. Now you might be thinking at this point, but wait, Galatians 3.28 says... In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, right? Well, yeah, right. When it comes to the inheritance of every believer as a child of God, when it comes to our worth in the eyes of God, there is no distinction at all between Jew and Gentile. And I believe in the eternal state, there will be no distinction whatsoever between Jew and Gentile. But until God finishes his plan of redemption, I believe God still has a purpose for Israel. And the true Israel is believing Israel. And by the way, there in Galatians 3.28, the exact same thing is said of male and female. And while this insane world seems no longer to be able to tell the difference between men and women, God most assuredly does know the difference. Israel has always been right in the thick middle of God's plan to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they still are. And I don't think you have to look very long at, at, at the, the current news to, to see that, that's still, that, that God is still using Israel as a lightning rod. And that's been going on as long as I've been alive. By the way, I believe the world is going to get to see this priestly calling for Israel fulfilled in an unprecedented way when the events prophesied in Revelation 7 unfold. Now, I know there are differences of understanding of that, so this isn't like, don't treat this as inspired, but, but that passage just really intrigues me because it starts out with God holding back four angels that are about to be sent out to, to pour out harm on mankind as, in judgment. 
And they're withheld until God has sealed 144,000 Jews on their foreheads to mark them as his own. And then the next part of that chapter is John receiving a vision of myriad upon myriad from every tribe and tongue and people and nation standing before the throne of the Lamb of God with their robes having been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. I think that's a progression. I think God saves a whole bunch of Jews and uses those Jews to save a whole bunch of Gentiles. And those Gentiles, it says, they come out from the midst of the tribulation and they have their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. I think they, they all get martyred. I, I know. There's a lot there, but that's just me. Okay, now, here in Acts 13, just like the Jews for dozens of generations before them, the Jews in Pisidian Antioch cut themselves off from this priestly calling of God for Israel by rejecting the very one whom the calling is all about. So Paul, being a redeemed Jewish ambassador of Jesus, continues to carry out that purpose himself, as does Barnabas, by turning directly to the Gentiles in that city. But beloved, Paul's declaration here in Acts 13.46 that he and his co-workers are turning to the Gentiles certainly does not mean that Paul is done bringing the gospel to the Jews. As, as I said, he would continue to start his ministry in each city at the synagogue. <clears throat> it's a very consistent pattern in Acts. Paul's gospel would always be to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, so that, I believe, in every place, the Jews who did believe the gospel would have the opportunity to fulfill their priestly calling as ambassadors of their own long-promised and now perfectly revealed Messiah. Now, a very large number of Gentiles who had gathered at that synagogue that Sabbath uh, heard something that they had never heard from a Jew before. That the message of forgiveness and life that Paul was preaching was for Gentiles as well as Jews. And when they heard this, Luke says in verse 48 that they, quote, began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The second part of verse 48 then says something exceedingly important. It says, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, we're going to spend some time on that, on that last half of that verse. Some have attempted to water down Luke's words there by insisting that they could be translated, as many as had been disposed toward eternal life believed. But that's not what the words mean. The root meaning of the verb here is to appoint, to ordain, to assign to some particular outcome or station. And it is consistently translated with that meaning in this verse in all of the mainstream English versions. And it's translated that way because that's what it means. Appointed. Of the seven other occurrences of the same Greek word in the New Testament, none of them has anything to do with any predisposition of the person or place for the appointing that happens to him. And the verb used here is passive, it's not active. See, being appointed to eternal life is something that already happened, already happened to the people who heard and believed Paul's message 
on this day. Just as happened to those who believe the message on any day. It had nothing to do with the predisposition of the hearers to be receptive to the message that Paul preached. Luke is telling us without ambiguity that those in Pisidian Antioch whom the Holy Spirit brought to faith in Jesus through Paul's proclamation were the ones who had already been appointed to eternal life. Now, I'm aware, of course, that the assertion that God predetermines or predestines which people will believe in Jesus and be saved is one of the most hotly debated theological issues among Bible-believing Christians, real Christians, all over the world. And it's been that way for many generations. So I want to be super clear here that where you land on this debate does not determine whether you are a child of God. We're talking here about a non-essential doctrine when it comes to what must be believed in order to be saved. But friends, a teaching can be clearly presented in the Bible without being central to the gospel. And if I labeled as unclear a teaching that I am convinced that this passage and many others present as clear, I would be failing miserably in my assignment to preach the Word of God as it is instead of as I or someone else might want it to be. If you don't agree with my conclusions here, I exhort you very, very strongly not to let what I'm saying be cause for division between me and you or between you and anyone else in the body of Christ. We are commanded by God to be diligent to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Ephesians 4, that is the pinnacle of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in the Lord. Unity first. Now, and that means that uh, I'm, all, what I'm going to ask you to do here is, is to simply consider what I'm putting on the table and test it against God's Word, just like everything else that comes out of my mouth or anyone else's. As I see it, there is nothing surprising in this last part of verse 48 because it is not an exception to what we find in numerous other passages. The declaration that God chose or elected, or as Paul puts it here, appointed those who would come to faith in Jesus long before they came to faith in Jesus perfectly matches up with many other New Testament passages. God does not save people because they are predisposed to believe or because they took the initiative to seek after God. In Romans 3 verse 10, Paul says, there is no one who seeks after God. No one. There are people who think they're seeking after God, but Paul says that's not what's happening. God saves people because he chose to save them. When did he choose? When did he choose? Ephesians, 3, Ephesians chapter 1 answers that question, so do many other passages. But Ephesians 1 says this, verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You know when that was? That was before anything existed except God. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself 
according to the kind intention of his will. That's the basis, the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. By the way, that exact same phrase before the foundation of the world is used twice in Revelation. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 to explain when God wrote down in the Lamb's book of life everyone whose name is in that book before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we all started out dead in our trespasses and sins. And we all walked according to Satan's ways and not God's ways. And we were all children of wrath. And then listen to what he says in verses 4 through 10. This is such a magnificent passage. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that passage say about the predisposition of people to be saved? It does talk about our predisposition. It says that we are all predisposed to follow Satan. Not merely predisposed, we're all in. We're children of wrath. According to that passage, friends, even the faith to believe in Jesus was and is the gift of God. We had nothing to offer to commend ourselves to God, not even the ability to believe what he clearly reveals in his word until he changed our heart to believe and receive the truth. Paul says that the gospel is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. See, dead people don't have anything to offer. The only active agent in the salvation of a sinner, according to that passage in Ephesians 2, is God, not the sinner. When we were dead, he made us alive. And that means that the salvation of any sinner is a resurrection miracle. It's God giving life where there was only death. And as I've said before, I believe that Paul's amazing conversion story in Acts chapter 9 is the stripped-down version of every believer's conversion story. Spiritually dead, enemies of God brought out of death into life by just one thing, and that is the grace of God, the undeserved grace of God in Jesus Christ alone. I believe you and I have as much to do with our spiritual rebirth into the household of God as we had to do with our physical birth in the first place, and that's exactly nothing. Now, I could go on and on. I haven't even gotten to John 17 or Romans 9 
which are two of the clearest passages on God's sovereign election, his choice in advance of those whom he saves through faith in Jesus. That choice is based only on the mercy and grace of God, never on anything that he finds in us. Now, personally, I consider this to be one of the most liberating things that I know, and I consider it to be one of the most, one of the most reassuring things that I know. It's liberating because it means I don't determine anybody else's eternal destiny. Neither do they. Only God does. We do the work of evangelism, friends, not because God can't save people without us, but because God declared that he was going to use those whom he calls out of the darkness to call many others out of the darkness. See, that's called human agency. God's people doing God's work, God's way, in God's creation as those who have been made in the image of God. That's human agency. And that intention of God for mankind is set before us from the very first chapter of the Bible to the very last chapter of the Bible. The sovereignty of God in choosing all who will be saved is liberating because it means I don't determine anyone else's eternal destiny. Neither do they. Only God does. And it is reassuring. It is exceedingly reassuring because it means I don't determine my own eternal destiny. Only God does. See, since God was and is the only active agent in my salvation, I can't undo it. Since it wasn't a cooperative effort in any way, but was rather a decree of God made before anything existed except God, <laughs> there is no possibility that I can do anything to undo it. And that means that the security of my calling as a child of God and of my eternal destiny to dwell with God in the place that Jesus went to prepare for his people, together with all of you who know him, that destiny is as solid as solid gets. That destiny is more certain than tomorrow's sunrise. And that is powerfully reassuring. It's liberating, it's reassuring, but, but beloved, above all, it puts all of the credit and all of the glory on God and God alone. That's what I love about this teaching. It is, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of God's grace. In John Piper's amazing book, Providence, he says that's really the sum, that is really the summation of God's purpose in his entire plan of redemption. It is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Do I fully comprehend why God would choose to save me and many others in this room, yet not choose to save everyone? No, I do not. I have some ideas about that based on some other things that I see in God's Word. But those things have absolutely nothing to do with me or you and everything to do with God. If you want to talk about those things, come grab me at some point. But this is definitely, guys, this is definitely not something that I expect ever to fully comprehend. I'm not even sure that I will when I stand in the presence of God. If I could get my hands around God, He wouldn't be worth worshiping. I believe this because I'm convinced that God has clearly and repeatedly declared it in his word. That's why I believe it.
It was a leap. It was a. It wasn't a leap. It was a hard step for me when I was a young believer, but I just couldn't. I couldn't deny it. Now I know I've been very. I've been very forceful about all that, but I want to go back to what I said before. If you disagree with me, do not let that divide you from me or from any other believer in Jesus Christ. That would be the wrong way to handle this. All right, enough about that. After telling us that the Gentiles who heard Paul's word be, words began rejoicing, glorifying the Lord, the word of the Lord, and that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, Paul says in verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. He's talking about Syria. And that phrase, the word of the Lord, occurs ten times in the book of Acts, and every time it's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul stopped talking to Jews in Pisidian Antioch and started talking to Gentiles, the Holy Spirit opened the floodgates of faith among the Gentiles and the revival overflowed into all of Syria. Verse 50 says, When the Jews saw that the gospel was being well received by many of the Gentiles, they, they redoubled their efforts to squash this movement, uh, says they, quote, aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, and they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. Now, have you ever noticed, have, have you ever noticed how Satan loves to use rich, powerful, influential people, and in the Old Testament, even exceptionally large people, while Jesus loves to use poor, downtrodden, despised people, and small and lame and blind people, and people like Paul, whose power and influence he has very decisively ripped out of their hands so that he can make them truly useful and marvelously blessed in him alone. Those are the kinds of people that God uses. Acts 13.51 says, but they, Paul and Barnabas and their co-workers, shook off the dust of their feet in protest against those Jews, and they went to Iconium. In Matthew 10, when Jesus was about to send his disciples out into the cities of the Jews to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said to them, verse 14, whoever does not receive you or heed your words as you go out of that house or out of that city, shake off the dust from your feet. Truly, truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Those are strong words. This was not a new symbol. It was actually quite familiar to Jews of that era. It was as if the person shaking the dust off their feet was saying, because you have treated us so dishonorably, even the dirt you walk on is unclean. So we're going to shake it off our feet as soon as we get clear of your city or your house. Now, the motivation for Paul and Barnabas to leave Pisidian Antioch was not self-protection. It was usefulness. This wasn't merely about living to fight another day. It was about spreading the gospel far and wide. There will be times when you and I must leave people behind who have been unresponsive to the gospel in order to move on toward people who might be responsive to the gospel. That's not a defeat. It's not even a retreat. It is an advance to bring the gospel to other people 
in other places. Last thing I want to point out in this chapter is in the last verse. It says, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Not just on what we might call their good days, but continually. One of the greatest concerns that I and many others have for the church in this country, in this present age, is that it seems in large measure that the church equates blessing from God with cultural acceptability and freedom from persecution. Let me say that again. In large measure, the church in America equates blessing from God with cultural acceptability and freedom from persecution. And guys, nothing could be further from the truth. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14. This is a good one to memorize, guys, in this, especially in this era. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you that comes upon you for your testing, as if some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. That means you may super rejoice when he comes back. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, <laughs> you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I mentioned this once before recently, but that word rest means exactly what it sounds like. It means that the Holy Spirit, he is at rest on persecuted believers. He doesn't have to change things up. He doesn't have to shake them up. They are right where he wants them. He's at rest. Because that's where he intends for his people to be in the world. Not accepted, because then we wouldn't be like Jesus. But overwhelmingly rejected and accepted only by those whom God is calling to himself. Things had certainly not gone smoothly for Paul and Barnabas in Pisidian Antioch, and, and there would be nothing smooth. It's Bob's favorite word, smooth. No, I'm kidding. It's his least favorite word. There'd be nothing smooth about any of the years or months or days that remained of Paul's ministry on Christ's behalf. A ministry that would end with Paul's head being removed from his body on order of the emperor of Rome. But Paul and Barnabas weren't merely undeterred by the per persecution that they faced in city after city. They were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. One of the most mightily used instruments of God as he works through his people, and that includes you and me, to spread his kingdom in the world is our joy. We got to talk about that a lot in the worship this morning. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ has always spread like wildfire when God's people are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When our joy is found only in Jesus, nothing can take it away. Those who try to take it away only end up magnifying it because we know that when we are reviled for the name of Christ, 
the spirit of glory and of God is at rest on us. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the life of Paul and the ministry of Paul and, and, and the other faithful men who were with him. We have so much to learn by reading these things in your word. We pray that we, Lord, would be those joyful ambassadors, undeterred by opposition and persecution, who boldly proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We, we depend on you. We prayerfully trust in you. We have no other source of power and provision but you, and you are all that we need. And so we thank you, Father, for giving us the greatest job in the world in Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.